Chapter 12 of War by Pierre Lotti. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. War by Pierre Lotti. Translated by Marjorie Laurie. Chapter 12. Some words uttered by Her Majesty, the Queen of the Belgians. All the world knows what value to attach to the King of Prussia in his word. There is no sovereign in Europe who has not suffered from his perfidy, and such a king as this would impose himself upon Germany as dictator and protector. Under a despotism which repudiates every principle, the Prussian monarchy will one day be the source of infinite calamity, not only to Germany, but likewise to the whole of Europe. The Empress Maria Theresa. March 1915 far away far away and out of the world seems this place where the persecuted queen has taken refuge i do not know how long my motor-car its windows lashed by rain has rolled along in the dim light caused by showers and approaching night when at last a belgian non-commissioned officer who guided my chauffeur along these unfamiliar roads announces that we have arrived her majesty queen elizabeth of the belgians has deigned to grant me an audience at half-past six and I trembled lest I should be late, for the way seemed interminable through a countryside which it was too dark to see. But we were in time, punctual to a moment, at half-past six on an evening in March. Under an overcast sky, it is already dark as night. The car stops, and I jump out onto the sands of the seashore. I recognize the sound of the ocean close at hand, and the boundless expanse of the North Sea, less dark than the sky, is vaguely perceptible to the sight. Rain and cold winds rage around us. On the dunes, two or three houses without lights in the windows are visible as grayish outlines. However, someone carrying a little shining glass lamp is hurrying to receive me. He is an officer in Her Majesty's service, carrying one of those electric torches which the wind does not blow out, and which in France we call an Apache's lantern. On entering the first house to which the aide-de-camp conducts me, I attempt to leave my overcoat in the hall. No, no, he says. Keep it on. We have still to go out of doors to reach Her Majesty's apartments. This first villa shelters only ladies-in-waiting and officers of that court, now so shorn of ceremony, and every evening it is plunged purposely in darkness as a precaution against shrapnel fire. A moment later... I am summoned to Her Majesty's presence, escorted by the same pleasant officer with his lantern. I hurry across to the next house. The rain is mingled with white butterflies, which are flakes of snow. Very indistinctly I see a desert-like landscape of dunes and sands, almost white, stretching out into infinity. Would you not imagine it a sight in the Sahara, says my guide? When your Arab cavalry came here, the illusion was complete. It is true, for even in Africa the sands turn pale in the darkness. But this is a Sahara transported under the gloomy sky of a northern night, and it has assumed there too deep a melancholy. In the villa we enter a warm, well-lighted room, which, with its red furnishings, introduces a note of gaiety, almost of comfort, into this quasi-solitude, battered by wintry squalls. And there is a pleasure which at first transcends everything else, 
the physical pleasure of approaching a fireplace with a good blazing fire. While waiting for the queen, I notice a long packing case lying on two chairs. It is made of that fine, unequaled white carpentry which immediately reminds me of Nagasaki, and on it are painted Japanese letters and columns. The officer's glance followed mine. That, he says, is a magnificent ancient sabre which the Japanese have just sent to our king. I personally had forgotten them, those distant allies of ours in the farthest east, yet it is true that they are on our side. How strange a thing! And even over there, the woes of these two gracious sovereigns are universally known, and the Japanese desired to show their special sympathy by sending them a valuable present. I think this charming officer was going to show me the sabre from Japan, but a lady-in-waiting appears, announcing Her Majesty, and he withdraws at once. Her Majesty is coming, says the lady-in-waiting. The Queen, whom I have never yet seen, consecrated as it were by suffering, with what infinite reverence I await her coming, standing there in front of the fire, while wind and snow continue to rage in the black night outside. Through which door will she enter? Doubtless by that door over there at the end of the room, on which my attention is involuntarily concentrated. But no, a soft rustling sound makes me turn my head towards the opposite side of the room, and from behind a screen of red silk, which concealed another door, the young queen appears, so near to me that I have not room to make my court bow. My first impression necessarily furtive as a flash of lightning, a mere visual impression, I might say a colorist's impression, is a dazzling little vision of blue, the blue of her gown, but more especially the blue of her eyes, which shine like two luminous stars. And then she has such an air of youth. She seems this evening twenty-four, and scarcely that. From the different portraits I had seen of Her Majesty, portraits so little faithful to life, I had gathered that she was very tall, with a profile almost too long, but on the contrary, she is of medium height, and her face is small, with exquisitely refined features, a face almost ethereal, so delicate that it almost vanishes, eclipsed by those marvellous, limpid eyes like two pure turquoises, transparent to reveal the light within. Even a man, unaware of her rank and of everything concerning her, her devotion to duty, the superlative dignity of her actions, her serene resignation, her admirable, simple charity, would say to himself at first sight, that woman with those eyes, who may she be? Assuredly one who soars very high and will never falter, who without even a tremor of her eyelids can look in the face not only temptations, but likewise danger and death. With what reverent sympathy, free from vulgar curiosity, would I fain catch an echo of that which stirs in the depths of her heart when she contemplates the drama of her destiny. But a conversation with the queen is not directed by one's own fancy, and at the beginning of the audience, her majesty touches upon different subjects slightly and gracefully, as if there were nothing unusual happening in the world. We talk of the East, where we have both travelled. We talk of books she has read. It seems as if we were oblivious of the great tragedy which is being enacted. 
oblivious of the surrounding country, strewn with ruins and the dead. Soon, however, perhaps because a little bond of confidence has established itself between us, Her Majesty speaks to me of the destruction of Ipong, Fern, towns from which I have just come. Then the two blue stars gazing at me seem to me to grow a little misty, in spite of an effort to keep them clear. But, madam, I say, there still remain standing enough of the walls to enable all the outlines to be traced again, and almost everything to be practically reconstructed in the better times that are in store. Ah, she answers, rebuild. Certainly it will be possible to rebuild, but it will never be more than an imitation, and for me something essential will always be lacking. I shall miss the soul which has passed away. Then I see how dearly Her Majesty had already loved those marvels, now ruined, and all the past of her adopted country, which survived there in the old stone tracery of Flanders. Ipa and Fum incline us to subjects less impersonal, and gradually we at last come to talk of Germany. One of the sentiments predominant, it seems, in her bruised heart is that of amazement, the most painful as well as the most complete amazement, at so many crimes. There has been some change in them, she says, in hesitating words. They used not to be like this. The crown prince, whom I knew very well in my childhood, was gentle, and nothing in him led one to expect. Think of it as I may, day and night. I cannot understand. No. In the old days they were not like this. Of that I am sure. But I know very well that they were ever thus, as indeed all of us know. But they were always the same from the beginning under their inscrutable hypocrisy. But how could I venture to contradict this queen, born among them, like a beautiful, rare flower among stinging nettles and brambles? To be sure, the unleashing of their latent barbarism, which we are now witnessing, is the work of that king of Prussia, who is the fateful successor of him whom formerly the great Empress Maria Theresa stigmatized. It is he indeed who, to use the bitter yet very just American expression, has given them swelled heads. But their character was ever the same in all ages, and in order to form a judgment of their souls, steeped in lies, murders, and rapine, it is sufficient to read their writers, their thinkers, whose cynicism leaves us aghast. After a moment's pause, in which nothing is heard but the noise of the wind outside, remembering that the young martyred queen was a Bavarian princess, I venture to recall the fact that the Bavarians in the Germany army were troubled at the persecutions endured by the queen of the Belgians, who had sprung from their own race, and indignant when the monster who leads this witch's Sabbath even tried to single out her children as a mark for his shrapnel lyre. But the queen, raising her little hand from where it rested on the silken texture of her gown, outlines a gesture which signifies something inexorably final, and in a grave, low voice, she utters this phrase which falls upon the silence with the solemnity of a sentence whence there is no appeal. It is at an end. Between them and me has fallen a curtain of iron which will never again be lifted. 
at the same time at the remembrance of her childhood doubtless and of those whom she loved over there the two clear blue eyes which were looking at me grew very misty and i turned my head away so that i may not seem to have noticed End of chapter twelve